Anyway, you guys can grab a seat. This time, fourth through sixth graders can be dismissed to their classes. Two weeks in a row, I remembered. We're on a streak now. That's right. God, two, applause two weeks in a row as well. Excellent. I still, um, you know, we've got a, a different setup with, uh, with chairs now. I still can't quite figure out why literally no one has sat on the front row right here. Like Splash Zone at SeaWorld. But anyway, regardless, I promise it's not that bad. We'll see what happens next week. Who knows? Regardless, on to the passage this morning. Welcome to The Grove. Uh, my name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. Um, we are in the middle of our study through the book of Samuel, or the books of Samuel, first and second Samuel. Um, so we are uh, in the middle of second Samuel here as we've been walking through um, uh, these people of God who have been uh, delivered from Egypt, going through the wilderness. They finally get to the promised land, and now God has given them a king to rule over them. So the story of first Samuel, and the first king was this guy named Saul. Saul didn't listen to God. Saul was searching after his own glory. So God removes him from the kingship and brings up this other guy, this little shepherd boy from Bethlehem named David. And so then we get into 2 Samuel now, and David has just ascended to the throne. He is God's chosen king, his chosen one. And David now is seated on the throne with a unified kingdom over Israel. And we got to the point last week in chapter seven where we saw one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible as God comes and makes this promise, this covenant with David. In particular, he says that he would establish David's kingdom through his lineage, through his house. He would establish David's kingdom forever, for eternity, that there is this descendant, this offspring that's coming in the line of David that would establish this forever eternal kingdom. And we saw that that one that was coming from David was pointing to Jesus Christ, who came from the line of David and established um, that kingdom, inaugurated it through his resurrection, and will one day bring it fully when he comes again. But this week, so we saw last week this incredible promise, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. This week, we look at the second half of chapter seven and see how does David respond to that promise? What is David's response to this covenant, These, this incredible promise of an eternal kingdom? How in the world is David gonna respond to it? And we get a glimpse into the heart of David. And I love it because David is described elsewhere in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Now we'll get, we'll see through the rest of 2 Samuel, it wasn't because David was perfect. David was very messed up. I can promise David is worse than anyone in here. And we'll see why in a little while uh, here in a few weeks. But we see at the very heart of David though, there's this intimacy and this relationship that he has with God. There's this humility that he comes to. He, he turns back to God. He knows who he is and who it is that he's following, even though he is imperfect. And there's this intimacy that we see with David that I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll read and I'll go, man, it doesn't feel like I have that kind of relationship with God. Or maybe if we're really honest, which I wish this was a place where we could be, we'd go, honestly, I don't even know if I have a relationship with God at all. That's such a foreign concept. God seems like this idea that maybe I try to do good things and not do bad things. Maybe I go to church some, but a, a relationship Intimacy with God, that doesn't describe how I relate to him. And then you see people with, with passion and love and they, they worship and follow after him. You just go, man, I wish I had that, but I just, I couldn't be further away from that. And often our view of God is shaped by things apart from who God has revealed himself to be. And we ask, well, where do we get our idea of who God is like? For so many of us, it's from maybe things that we've seen movies, 
cable news, TV shows, and it informs what it is we believe God to be like or his church to be like. Or maybe it's from what we've experienced that we view God to be like. Whether it be circumstances, difficulties in our lives, it feels like, God, you are somebody that apparently has just made the world and stepped back because you are definitely not involved in my life. And our view of God is informed by our circumstances, or maybe it's just by what is felt, our emotion and what it feels like. And as we try to interpret all this stuff in our life, it feels like God is distant. At best, he started the world at step back. And at worst, it seems like maybe he's up in heaven just laughing at us as we're just stumbling around trying to do this thing called Christianity. It's almost like it's a, a, our life is America's Funniest Home Videos and God's just tuned in as we keep messing up. And it feels like God is this separate entity and a relationship with him, one of intimacy and closeness and love and worship and affection feels so distant. But when we look at David here, we'll get a glimpse into his heart. And I want us to see there's a couple things that David focuses in on, which I think will help us to be able to step back and go, how in the world can we have a relationship with God like David did? We'll see a couple of things rise up, but most importantly, we see here that David's view of God came not from what is seen, not from what he'd experienced, and not from what he'd felt, but David's view of God was informed by what he had heard. And as we see David's response here in this prayer, the most important thing to keep in the back of your mind is that his response to this prayer came from what he had just heard. And this is true throughout the Bible. Our, our biblical understanding of who God is comes primarily by what is heard. God speaks. That's why we have then his word. And so as we look this morning, I want us to see now in 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 through 29, to see David's response to this incredible covenant and how it is he views God, and more importantly, what it is he focuses in on his relationship. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse, starting in verse 18. Then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence and said, who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. And because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. This is why you're great, Lord God. There's no one like you and there's no God besides you as all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself and to perform for them great and awesome acts driving out nations and their gods before your people, you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people Israel to be your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant in his house. Do as you have promised, so that your name will be exalted forever. When it's said that the Lord of armies is God over Israel, the house of your servant David will be established before you. Since you, Lord of armies, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, please bless your servant's house 
so that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. So as we see this prayer, there's, there's two different themes that I want us to focus in on, two different main sections that David, that David sees. We'll see in verses 18 through 24, David focuses in on grace or what God has done. And then he turns in verse 25 through the end of the chapter to focus in on promise and what God said he will do. And these are two themes that I want us to see that will help begin to stir our affections and help our relationship with God as we run after and try to grab hold of these two things in our life, grace and promise. And yeah, there are other things, but we see here in particular, David is honed in on these two, God's grace and God's promise. And for us, I think so often we can neglect those and, and sometimes get caught up in what we think the Christian life is or is not. And the Christian life can feel a lot like things that we need to do or try to just stop doing. It's a checklist. And then we feel guilty if we don't do them, and we feel good about ourselves if we do do them. Come to church this morning, awesome, check. Even the Sunday after Easter, whenever it was prom last night, we still woke up anyway, even though our kids kept us up till three in the morning, and we're here right now, check, made it through. But what we see here is that David is focusing in, in his relationship with God, not what he can offer to God, but what God has done for him and what God has said he will do for him. Grace and promise. So first, what God has done for him. He focuses first on himself for David. He looks in his own life and he begins with the question, look at verse 18, who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? David's prayer, David's response to God, this incredible promise and covenant begins with humility and wonder and amazement. He said, God, who am I? Why would you choose me for this? How in the world did, did I, was I able to be chosen for this task, to be given this grace, to be given this blessing? Who am I? David doesn't feel like he's earned it. Notice David doesn't begin and go, oh yeah, God, it makes sense. I mean, you know, the whole Goliath thing, I took him down. You know, I've, I've been on the run in the wilderness, but I stayed faithful. And now here I am, the chosen king of Israel. It makes sense that you would, you would make this covenant with me. David doesn't expect God's grace. He's surprised by God's grace. And he comes humbly and goes, God, who am I? David has lived faithfully. He's run after God. He has fought the battles for the nation of Israel. And yet still in this moment, when God comes and extends grace to him, David is amazed because he knows his heart and says, God, who am I? Friends, this is at the very heart of grace, God's grace and our response to God. We have to make sure that we don't begin to expect God's grace. That we don't go, oh yeah, you know what? It makes sense why God would save me. I mean, I'm kind of awesome. This unique snowflake that comes and brings very particular things to God's kingdom. I mean, he needs me on his team. It makes sense. And it happens two ways. There's two ways in which this grace gets reduced. One, we either elevate ourselves we begin to think more of ourselves than actually we are. Or two, we lessen just how different God is than us. We lessen his holiness. We begin to go, oh yeah, it makes sense. We focus all on uh, uh, God. Yes, you are a God of love and grace and mercy. You are a lamb, absolutely. And it, if we're not careful though, those things are all true. But if we only focus in on that aspect of who God is, we begin to bring him down closer to our level and begin to expect what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we aren't amazed at what happened there. 
I've told this illustration before, but I just find it to be so helpful. Um, and so we're going to tell it again. Uh, if you've ever been to a petting zoo, you know, they go and they give you this nasty paste food. I don't know, exactly know what it is. Some, it's some substance, but apparently animals like it. And they put it in your hand. You pay 50 cents. They put it in your hand. You get to go out, you know, hold your hand out, and the animals come, and they eat the food from your hand. It's an incredible experience. And we go, and we walk around, and we see there's this cute little lamb kind of galloping in the distance. And so we go up, and we bend down, and we begin to hold out our hand, and the lamb comes up and gently laps the food off of our hand. It's an incredible moment. But then all of a sudden, in the background, we hear this roar. And we turn around, and we see people are scattering, and we see that a lion has gotten loose and has now made its way to the petting zoo. And you're trapped in a quarter, and you can't get out. The lamb's made it away, but you're now the thing that's standing uh, in front of the lion's eyes. It starts to walk up to you, lets out this huge roar, and your hands are there shaking. You close your eyes, and then all of a sudden, you begin to feel something gently licking the food out of your hand, and you open your eyes, and you see the lion is now not eating you, but gently eating the food out of your hand. Which one of those two, the lion or the lamb, will you be more grateful ate the food out of your hand. <laughs> it ain't going to be the lamb. Well, why? Because you expect the lamb to do it. But the lion, you expect it to devour you, but instead it showed you gentleness. And friends, we have to be careful when we come to God that we understand that, yes, he is the, the lamb, but he is also the lion. And as we have stood before his holiness, as people who have rebelled against him, we deserve his punishment against a holy king. But instead of giving us what we deserved, he gave us gentleness and kindness and grace and mercy and love instead. And whenever we realize that, then we enter into his presence and we begin with this question, oh God, who am I? And what is my house that you brought me this far? And so David begins with that. He doesn't deserve God's grace. He hasn't earned it. That's the very opposite of what grace is, friends. Grace is allergic to earning. That's not grace. You show up to your job. You do your job. At the end of it, you get paid for what you did. You deserve that. You earned that. But that's not grace. That's a paycheck. Friends, grace in its very essence is something that you cannot earn. It's something that you do not deserve. And God gives it anyway. And so David understands at the very beginning, that is his posture. Oh God, who am I? I do not deserve your grace, what you have done for me. And what is my house that you brought me this far? He moves on from humility and looking back at what you've done so far in verse 19. He said, God, what you've done so far, it was a little thing for you. It was nothing for you to do what it is you've done in, in my life. But you've also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. So he's referencing back to that covenant, that promise that God had just made. That from David's offspring through his house will come this eternal kingdom. He says, you have spoken about this servant's house in the distant future. And that promise, this, this covenant is a revelation for mankind. David understood the breadth of God's promise, that it wasn't just for David and it wasn't just for David's lineage, but it was for all the families of the earth. It was a revelation for all of mankind. Again, David is making that connection back to the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, where God said that through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. David sees it and is saying, God, this is an extension of that covenant, that through this promise, there will be an offspring who will bring about your kingdom, and it's a revelation for mankind. And he continues on in verse 20 and 21, and he says, what more can David say to you? He is amazed. He's speechless. He's not speechless. He goes on for another like 18 verses, but he at least asks the question, what more can David say to you? You know your servant, but because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things 
to your servant. And then he shifts in 22 to focus on God's character, right? David understood just how amazing God was. He knew that he was the lion of Judah. He knew that he was holy. He said, God, this is why you are great. There is no one like you. There is no God besides you. And there is uh, no one who can touch you as all that we have heard confirms. And so he begins with that grace that's been extended to him. God, you have brought me this far and you're gonna continue to do more and more. And who am I? I do not deserve it. But then he turns and he looks not only to himself, but to Israel. In verse 23, he looks at God's grace, what God has done for Israel. He said, God, who is like you? There's no one. Then in verse 23, he says, and who is like your people, Israel? So God is, David is now noting the uniqueness of the nation of Israel. But what makes them unique? It's not how awesome they are. It's not how strong their military forces are or how great of arts are coming out of Jerusalem. He, he notes the uniqueness of Israel comes from the uniqueness of their God. He says, God, who is like your people, Israel? Well, the answer is no one. Why? Because God came to that one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself. So David is saying what makes Israel so unique is the fact that God came to them, chose them and redeemed them, saved them, delivered them from slavery in Egypt. This is the story that he's referencing back to when the nation of Israel was in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. God came, right? Sent Charlton Heston, delivered them, let the people go and then redeemed them from slavery to himself, brought them to the promised land. This is what he's referencing. And I want to focus in on this one phrase because really you get just about the entire gospel in this phrase in verse 23. God came to them. Israel did not go to God. Israel was in slavery. They were in bondage. There's nothing they could do to get to God. And so what did God do? God came to them. Friends, underline, circle, highlight, uh, that phrase, because that's what you get really the, just about the story of the Bible. God came to us. When we couldn't get to him, when we were trapped in bondage and slavery and fear, when we couldn't get to him, God came to us. But why did God come to us? Why did God come to Israel? Again, was it because of how awesome they were? Was it because they were impressive and God could use such a mighty nation like Israel for the greatness of his name? But no, we see earlier in the Bible in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, God actually says this. So, uh, Moses is just after they've been delivered. Moses says this to the people. It says, the Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you are more numerous than all the people, for you were actually the fewest of all the peoples. You hear what he's saying there? That God has set his heart on you. He has chose you, not because you were impressive, not because you were awesome, not because you were numerous. In fact, you were incredibly unimpressive. You were actually the fewest of all the peoples. So why then? Why would God choose this people? You want to know the answer that he gives them? It's because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your fathers, that he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The connection that Moses is making here is he says, listen, you wanna know why God loves you? You wanna know why God has set his heart on you and chose you? If you see it, you take out kind of this middle portion here of this chapter, you see the logic. He says that the Lord has set his heart on you and chose you because the Lord loved you. 
That's the logic that Moses makes here. He's saying, listen, there is nothing intrinsic of yourself that is drawing God to you. He's not impressed by you. In fact, you're tremendously unimpressive. But God loves you because he loves you. God's love for his people flows not in something that is a merit in them, but is flowing out of his very character and his covenant love and his steadfast faithfulness. And so what that means then is the freedom that that then gives his people to go, because if we came to God and he said, you know what, I'm going to choose you and love you because of how awesome you can be for my team for how morally good you may be or how uh, persuasive you may be or because maybe you're a celebrity or a great athlete. Listen, the moment that we begin to fall, what would that then create in us? Uncertainty and fear going, well, did I mess this up? Is God going to leave me now because I'm no longer, maybe not as impressive to him? But whenever we see that his love is rooted in his character, that he loves because he loves, then we see the freedom to walk forward and knowing that yes, when we fall, when we turn away, that the moment that we turn back, he will still be standing there because he loves you, not because of how awesome you are, but because of how merciful and gracious and loving he is. And we rest in that truth. But you cannot get to the bottom of why it is God loves you. It is a mystery probably one of the great mysteries of the Christian life, one of the greatest theological unknowns that we will never get to the bottom of. Why does God love me? That's a question that we cannot answer. The best words that we have are here in Deuteronomy. God loves us because he loves us, but we cannot get to the bottom of it. And in fact, for all of eternity, we'll be peering into that question and we'll never reach the end of it. We will understand deeper and deeper what it is, but we'll never get to the end and the bottom of why it is God loves us. And so people love to come to me and have theological arguments and doctrinal disputes. Well, well, if God's like this, then why does this happen? Or if God is like this, why are we supposed to do this? But do you know what? No one comes to me and asks, why does God love me? It's almost as though we expect it sometimes. But friends, let me just tell you, if you find the reason for God's love for you, then you have found the wrong reason. God loves us because he loves us. And so David is beginning with this reality that for his people, God came to them and he chose them and he loves them because he loves them. He is focused solely on grace. And why did he come? He came to redeem a people for himself in verse 23, to redeem a people both for himself and from Egypt. He delivered them from slavery and bondage. He set them free but notice God didn't set them free then and say, hey, you're free, from Israel. you're free from Egypt now. You're no longer slaves. So go and do what you would like to go and do. Go and figure out this life on your own. No, God freed his people from slavery. And then right whenever he freed them, he then gave them the law. He gave them the 10 commandments. He said, this is now how you are to live. So in essence, yes, God redeemed them from Egypt, but also for himself. He saved them from slavery and to himself. This is the nature of God's redemption. He saves us from something and to something. So he gives us freedom, but he does not give us independence. He's calling us to him to say, is in me that you'll find all the joy and satisfaction and desires of your heart that you're searching for. Come and follow after me. I've set you free from the things that held you bound. And I've now freed you to come and find the life and satisfaction and joy that you've been searching for through me. Friends, this is the same not only for the nation of Israel and Egypt, it's the same for us. This is the gospel. 
God has freed us from the bondage of slavery, of fear and sin. And he has now called us to himself and said, now follow after me, live for me and my kingdom. This is the very heart of what the gospel is. And so David, through these first few verses, is just rehearsing God's grace to himself. Before Jesus had even come, he was preaching the gospel to himself, focused in on God's grace, both for him and for his people. And so we have to make sure in our own lives that we know God's grace and that we are preaching to ourselves God's grace. We are reminding ourselves of God's grace because it's not our natural tendency to remember that. We're hardwired to try to work and earn. We want to try to earn what it is ahead of us. And God is saying, no, you're free from that. And so in our relationship with him, it begins there as we come humbly and amazed at God's grace for us and for his people. But David doesn't stop there. Yes, he focuses in on God's grace, but then he turns here in 25 to see now promise what God has said he will do. And he begins and says, now, so you can hear, there's the shift there in the prayer. Now, Lord God, now fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. And so you hear David's request. David is making this request now to God in the last half of verse 25, to do as you have promised. Again, this is another one. I want you to underline, highlight, box, circle, pencil, if you need to erase it afterwards for your unconscious, whatever it may be, but mark it up right now because within those five words, is that how I didn't count it? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, between those five words, you have about an entire theology of what our prayer is and how it is we are to come to God, to come and tell him, God, do as you have promised. This is David's request. God, do as you have promised. Now, I want you to look at it because it feels a bit arrogant, does it not? David's, there's not a question mark at the end of that. There isn't even a, a, you know, well, God, if it's your will. No, David comes and commands, right? This is an imperative sentence. There's this understood divine you at the beginning of that sentence. God, you do as you have promised. David is standing before this holy God that he has just said that there is no one like him. And he understands who am I to have received God's grace. And now he shifts and he goes, God, I'm coming to you. And this is what I'm telling you. Do as you have promised. Easy, David. Remember the whole lion and lamb illustration? Take it easy, man. Yet, friends, this is exactly what not only David, but the rest of the Bible has come to show us how we are to interact with God, how it is we are to pray to him. It's summed up in that phrase, God, do as you have promised. And now there's a couple things that, that arise, a couple problems that arise with that phrase. One of them is what happens whenever we hear God's promise, but the experience or circumstances in our life seem different from the promise. Well, God, what are we supposed to do then? Because I, I, okay, I see what you're saying over here, but listen, my life feels nothing like what you said, what you've promised me. So what do we do then? I want to take a little case study, if you will. Uh, and I want to flip to Psalm 89. Um, and Psalm 89, Psalms, the, the book of Psalms is uh, in essence, the song book of the Bible. It's a bunch of prayers and songs written by a number of different people, primarily David. 
and we get just the wide range, the entire range of human emotion. Now, the book of Psalms is one of my favorite books in the Bible, because what I can promise you is that no matter where, where you are right now, you can find yourself in the Psalms. So betrayal, brokenness, hurt, joy, love, uh, uh, whatever it may be, there are Psalms for you here. And so in this situation, whenever we hear God's promises and our lives aren't matching up to it, what are we supposed to do? Well, Psalm 89 shows us. In fact, the, the title in, uh, in my Bible, at least, of this psalm is perplexity about God's promises. What are we supposed to do when God's promises don't match up to our lives? Well, look at verse 1 and 2, how he begins. The psalmist writes, I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations with my mouth. For I will declare faithful love is built up forever, and you establish your faithfulness in the heavens. So the very beginning, he's establishing, God, this is your character. You are faithful and your faithful love will continue. You will do what you said that you would do. And look what he does next in verse three and four. He says, for the Lord said that I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. And then he quotes 2 Samuel 7. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your thrones for all generations. He quotes God's promise here back to God. And then he just continues in verses five, all the way through verse 37, just saying, God, this is your character. This is who you are. And remember, this was the promise and covenant that you made with David. And he goes back and is continually quoting it over and over again. You can hear him again in verse 28. I will always preserve my faithful love for him and my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line forever. You hear him quoting second Samuel seven again. His throne is long as heaven lasts. If my sons, if his sons abandon his instruction and don't live by my ordinances, if they dishonor my statutes and don't keep my commandments, I will call their rebellion to account with the rod, their iniquity with blows, but I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. He's just doting over God's character and God's promises. And you may say, Caleb, that's great, but things must be going great for him if he's singing like that. Look at verse 38, because there's a stark shift in 38. He says, but you have spurned and rejected him. You have become enraged with your anointed. You've repudiated the covenant with your servant, and you have completely dishonored his crown. You've broken down all his walls. You've reduced his cities to ruins, and all pass by and plunder him. And he's become an object, object of ridicule to his neighbors. Skip down to 46. How long, O Lord? Anybody ever prayed a prayer like that before or felt that before? How long, O oh Lord? Will you hide forever? You hear the honesty that's within the Bible when we open it up and read it? Here is a man who's going, God, this is what you've said. I know this to be true about you, and this is what you promised. But let me tell you my experience. It's like I don't even know where you are. It's like you're hiding. And how long will you be hiding? God, remember, look verse 47. Remember how short my life is. And have you just created everyone for nothing? He's desperate. He doesn't feel God's presence close to him. He feels like he's been abandoned and his life is falling apart. And God's promise does not match up with his experience. And so what does he do? He comes just like David does. And he reminds God of what it is that he promised. 
and say, God, this is my life right now, but let me just come and tell you, would you do as you have promised? Let me remind you and quote back what you have said that you would do. And that while this doesn't make sense to me, I will walk forward and I will trust you. And notice how he ends this Psalm in verse 52, and blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. One amen wasn't enough. He needed two of them. He said, God, I'm coming and reminding you and telling you, do as you have promised. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Alec Matir, says this about the psalm. He says, the question which the psalm poses is this. What's to be done when the promises of God are denied by the facts of experience? And this psalm answers, turn the promises into prayers and plead them before God. We come before God and say, God, do as you have promised that prayer pleads promises. Prayer pleads promises. As we come and our lives may not match up what we see God has promised, but we come back and we tell God, God, would you do as you have promised? We take his promises, we turn them into prayers and we plead them. Prayer pleads promises. And so when it doesn't match up, that's what we do as we come to him. Right, and I know in my life, right, I've got a two and a half year old girl, the most persuasive thing she can tell me, she asks me for stuff all the time, lots of chocolate, chocolate's usually involved. And the answer is pretty much just about always no, because I know, listen, if I just give you chocolate, you're gonna like it right now, but whenever you're diabetic at like age three, here in a couple months, you're not gonna like it. As, as, your, uh, as your diet is uh, gonna be focused in on primarily sugar, it's just, it's not going to go well for you. So as her father, I tell her no, something that she wants immediately and comes and asks me for, because I know there's something greater for her. Like, listen, I know that you don't like broccoli, but it's gonna be good, I promise. Just eat it, trust me, just eat it. Okay, look, here's some cheese. Here's some, this will help a little bit. But you know what the most persuasive thing when she comes and asks, it will always get me to do what it is she's asking to do when she comes and asks something that I promised her earlier I would do. Right, whenever I tell her, hey, Millie, listen, later on tonight, we're gonna do all this, and when, when we get back home, then I'll give you some chocolate. And I'll forget about it, I'll kinda go throughout the day. But let me tell you what, <laughs> that two and a half year old will not forget that. And it's unbelievable, the mind that they have. So don't believe that children can't learn, they can absolutely learn. And sure enough, hours go by. Events pass throughout our entire day. People come and go. Conversations happen. We laugh, we cry, we nap. But then what happens the moment we walk back into that door, she comes to me and says, can I have some chocolate? Because remember, you said earlier when we got home, we get some chocolate. And when she does that, I know, yes, okay, I promised you that. You're exactly right. Well done. I had forgotten, but here we are. And because I'd promised you that, and because you're reminding me of that promise, here's some chocolate. That's the best. She hadn't figured it out yet, so don't tell her. The most persuasive thing that she can do is to come to me and remind me what it is that I promised her. And friends, it's no different in our relationship with God. Now, God has not forgotten his promises. He's not sitting back uh, and going, oh, I got too busy. I forgot what I was going to do for them. Whenever we come, God is saying, come to me and remind me of my promise because I'm telling you, it is going to happen. It may happen a little bit differently than you have in your mind, but I can promise you that what I have told you will come to pass will come to pass. And so hold on to it and come forward. And whenever you pray in your relationship with me, have these two things focused in as pillars of our relationship, grace and promise, what I have done for you and what I've said that I will do for you. And friends, I'm convinced the 
problem for so many of us is not that we don't know what to pray. It's that we don't know what God has promised. And we don't come with that kind of confidence and that kind of boldness to come before him and say, God, do as you have promised. And so there's so many promises throughout the Bible. Um, and I wrote down a number of them. I'll just give a couple of them that for me that I hold on to over and over in my life. Romans 8.32 is one I come back to all the time. It's Paul's writing to the church in Rome and says that he who did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. So notice he begins with grace begins with the gospel, begins with the cross. God has given his son for you. And then here's the logic. How will he not also with him grant us all things? Friends, that's a promise. As we hold on and walk through this life going, God, it feels like my life's falling apart right now. I'm not entirely sure where to go, what to do, or if I have the strength to do it. But let me go back because I know that not only has your son died for me, but you've told me that with him, you will grant me all things, both for my good and for your glory. Now, my good may look a little bit different than what I imagined in my head, but I know that you have promised to work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. All things, not some things, not most things. God promises all those people who love him in Romans 8, 28 to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or also in Romans 8, 18, again, it's the same chapter. Romans 8 is a great chapter, by the way, in case you hadn't figured that out. It's a good one to start. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, the suffering that you're going through right now, it's expected and it will happen. God has not promised an easy life. He's promised a good life. And you will go through and experience the pain and brokenness of this world. But let me promise you something. The suffering that you're going through right now, it is nothing. It pales in comparison. It's not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, yes, the pain may be great now. The suffering may be great now. But those who walk through the greatest pain in this world have the best idea of just how incredible heaven will be. Because Paul is saying that it is not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. And so we hold on to that and go, God, listen, it doesn't feel like right now that this promise is true, but I'm going to hold on to it as tight as I can, knowing that, yes, there is great pain that I'm feeling right now, but I know that there is great hope and great glory and great good on the way. And there are so, so many. Goodness, Jesus says that I am with you always in Matthew 28. If you ever feel alone, remind God, God, you have not gone anywhere. You've said that you are with me always. In John 14, also, so Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans for I am coming to you. What an incredible picture of Jesus saying, listen, you won't be alone and I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the way in which we find these promises, friends, we have to open up his word. We have to hear what it is God has revealed and spoken. Remember, David's response here is to what he had heard. And because of that, then he brought God's promises back before him. If we don't hear from God, if we don't open up this book to read what it is he revealed, then we will always stand on shaky ground. But if we open up and begin to search this book, not as a checklist, not because we go, oh, this is the religious thing to do, but if we open it and go, God, okay, I'm ready to see who you are. What is your character like? What have you done? And what have you promised me? And let me begin to hold on to that and begin to change our relationship with him as we see 
see his grace and we see his promise. We see what he has done and we see what he will do. And all of a sudden, this Christian walk that felt so dry and incapable of being able to be true for you begins to start to be fanned to life over time as we begin to hold on to these great and very precious promises. And we walk forward and we begin to have a different kind of life and a different kind of courage, right? This is what David says at the end of his prayer. In verse 27, he says, you Lord of armies, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I will build a house for you. He's already quoting his promise. He said, therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. David's courage here, we see, was rooted in God's promise to him. And so he comes and he prays this incredibly courageous prayer, telling God what to do. But he does it because God has already said that he would do it. And so we want to try, even as a church, we want to try not to just go and figure out what it is that we'll go and create things and ask God to come and bless them. We want to begin with searching the scriptures and see, God, what have you said that you already care about and will accomplish? And we as a church are just going to come alongside that. Because then our prayer is not, God, would you come and make this thing something incredible? We get to come before him with courage and say, God, would you do what you have promised? And I see here in uh, Matthew that you said the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so we can walk forward in starting this church and saying, God, this is your mission. And we know that as we begin to push back the boundaries of the kingdom of darkness, that we can pray that prayer with confidence, that you are committed to the mission of your church. And this is David's logic here. He has that kind of courage. God, do as you have promised. And you see him work through this logic in 28. He says, Lord God, you are God. This is where he begins. You are God, where his courage is based out of. Then he moves on. He says, yes, you are God and your words are true. So God, there's never been anyone like you. You are holy, you are different and everything that you say is true. And then next he says, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. You hear the logic he's using. You are God, everything you say is true and you just said this to me. And so as a result of that, he says, so do as you have promised. It's based in what God has said, not in what David has seen, not in what David has experienced, and not in what David has felt, but in what David just heard. And this is what he references over and over again. Verse 25, he says, God, fulfill the promise. Again, in verse 25, do as you have promised. Verse 27, you have revealed this. Verse 27, again, when you said. Verse 28, you promised this good thing. In verse 29, when you have spoken. Throughout the entire thing, David is saying, God, you said, you said, remember, remember you said, remember you you promised, you revealed this. David's courage came from God's word. And he said, God, would you establish this kingdom that you promised that you would do? Would it come? You are holy and you you are unlike anyone else and would your kingdom come? And we begin to hear that it sounds similar to another prayer of a true and better David in the New Testament. As Jesus taught his disciples to pray a very similar prayer. Our father, who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are holy. You're like anyone, unlike anyone else. Would your kingdom come? What kingdom? The kingdom promised here in 2 Samuel 7. And would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And so as we then walk out of this cafeteria this morning, what are we supposed to do with it? Listen, if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, the thing that I want to call you to is to open up this book and begin to look for God's promises for you. 
just open it up and start reading it. See his grace and see his promise. If you feel like you've been walking through this life and you don't have that relationship, it begins with hearing from him. And then our prayer to him is a response to this. And it becomes a conversation. It becomes a relationship. We look for his character. We look for his promises. We look for his grace. And it won't happen overnight. You won't go home today, open it up, read Leviticus and go, oh man, that is incredible. Leviticus is incredible. We got to work for it a little bit. But over time, it's like working out. It's like a good diet. It doesn't happen immediately. It happens over time, steady, time after time. And God will begin to reveal who he is. will begin to change your heart. This is what he says throughout his word. And what we see is our understanding of him comes from what it is that we have heard. And if you're here this morning, again, and you're not a Christian, uh, I hope, again, this is a place where you can come ask any questions that you may have. But let me tell you, for you, the next step for you, open up this book. Go to the source material. Don't look at the, the idiots around the world who are trying to do this, right? We are very imperfect, but look to the source material itself. Look to the man himself, Jesus. Begin to read what he claimed about himself. Read about his life and ask the question, is he in fact who he said he is? Let me just put this offer on the table. If you're here and, and you would say, I'm not a Christian, maybe you, you, know, you are a Christian, you're like, I just, there are questions I have or I, uh, I'm not really sure about my faith. I would like to maybe interact with some people. Let me put this on the table. That if that's you and you want to go through, let's say one of the gospels, Let's say any one of our pastors here would love to be able to sit down for six weeks and walk through one of the gospels and just ask the questions, who is Jesus? What's he said about himself? Not to, not to pressure, not to force anything on people, because what we understand is that following Jesus is a decision that you have to make. We don't have to force that on anybody. We believe this to be true, and it's the greatest joy that we found in our lives. And we want people to come and experience the same thing. And so we want to just walk through and you can ask questions as you read through it. There's no way this happened. We'll go, well, let's talk about it. And so if that's you, again, just take one of the welcome cards that's on the seat. Just put your name down and write the word coffee on it. And one of our pastors will get in touch with you and we'd love to just walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, one of the gospels for six weeks. And you can look for yourself and asking the question, is this guy really who he said he is? And we'd love to walk through that with you. But it all begins with this book. And these promises as God has spoken to us. So how can we know what God is like? He's revealed himself primarily through his word. And as we interact with his word, we begin to see what he's like, what he's done and what he said that he will do. And my prayer is that we would respond as David did with humility, with wonder, with praise, with petition, with confidence and with pleading and boldness that we would respond that way. And as we live this Christian life, we see David laying out for us how it is we are to live and respond. Because you remember how this whole thing started. We, may, we, bro, we breeze past it. And I want to end with it again, back in verse 18. The entire scene started after he heard from the prophet Nathan what it was God had said to him. King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence, and then said. David went into God's presence and sat down at his feet and then prayed this prayer. And friends, that is the Christian life. May we strive to do the same, striving to not just do or not do certain things, but to strive to be in God's presence. That as we come and sit at his feet, then we'll finally be able to stand on his promises. Let's pray.